there's 5,000 head of deer that go through there every year. And so they put the money together and purchased this chunk of property, put an easement on it so it'll forever be open for wildlife. They gave it to the Wyoming Game and Fish to manage. And now you can see the current data. You can see all these deer funnel right past, right through that chunk of property. That is just one example of if you had cut that off, those deer would have died because they wouldn't have been able to get to the winter range. And a lot of people go, well, they'll just, you know, they'll change their migration pattern. They won't change the migration pattern. They found out that deer do not. They'll just hold up and end up dying. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. Alrighty, Ike. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's good seeing you again. I think it's been since Portland. It has. It has. Uh, that town looks a lot different than when we left it. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I haven't been back. <laughs> I've heard. I, I, at least on, on TV, it looks different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you guys have been working on mule deer a lot, and you've been working on this this migration video that's coming out. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so about a year ago, um, I was introduced to a project that they've been doing for, uh, gosh, since 2013. The Wyoming Game of Fish collaborated with the University of Wyoming, and they did, they started basically two guys at a, I think it was a moose banquet, just talking mule deer, and they, and come to find out, one of them was Gary Freilich, who is the biologist in the uh, Wyoming and Salt River Range here in Wyoming. It's one of the largest herds of deer that migrate one of the furthest out west. And he was talking to a new biologist, a new PhD from the University of Wyoming, uh, Kevin uh, Monteith, who is University of Wyoming's assistant professor, and he is a mule deer nut. Now, one of the coolest things is you couldn't have placed these two guys any better. Kevin Monteith is a hunting guy. He grew up in, in South Dakota, family hunting. He, he was really wanting to be a game warden or something similar to that and got into school and just kind of rolled with it and found out that it, you know school fit him. Uh, but he's really good at it, but he always, he, he did his, his, I think it was his PhD on mule deer uh, habitat and, and migration as well as uh, horn growth. He gets a job at the University of Wyoming and Gary Freilich, who is a biologist there in the Wyoming range, which is basically the entire western side of Wyoming, Wyoming and Salt River range. And these deer migrate, everybody knew they migrated out from there out to the Red Desert, which is a pretty long uh, trip. I mean, 50, 60 miles is what they thought. He's been the biologist there for 27 years. And he he sets up uh, that season's only been like a two-week season for a really, really long time. For Wyoming residents, it's over the counter. Uh, it used to be a pretty, a pretty easy tag to draw as a non-resident. He would set up a game check station 
and check every deer that came out of those two drainage out of those two ranges. So he had photos and documented, you know, certain things, not only antler growth, but just how, how good the species doing for 27 years, thousands of deer. And so these two guys get to talking and they come up with this idea that they're going to, that there's technology now that they can utilize that is going to make managing deer easier. So they get involved with uh, the uh, um, GIS division, the University of Wyoming, which is actually a federal division, but they have some monies to set aside for state funds. And so they build this, they formulate this plan to build collars for deer that, um, you know, back in the day, radio collars, they'd only last a year or two. Well, these GPS collars, they'll last 10 years. And so they started trapping does and putting GPS collars because what they want to find out is how far are these deer traveling and is the, the growth, the rural growth, you know, human aspect of it really affecting these deer, these deer's migration. Plus they did some uh, other things with habitat. You know, what, what kind of habitat are they foraging on throughout the year? Well, while this was all going on, the Department of Interior, the secretary, was sent a plan by a guy named Casey uh, Stimler. And I'm just, I'm gonna sidestep here for a second. Casey Stimler's dad actually toured with our deer tour. His dad was one of the guys behind the booth for like 20 years with our deer tour back in the 90s and early 2000s. Oh, wow. uh, his name is Don. Don was a great guy, is a great guy. Casey went through college and started working in the Federal First Fish and Wildlife and became the assistant director for there for a while. And now he is uh, pretty high up in the Department of Interior. And he wrote this, he was, a, he was at a conference and they were talking about wildlife, uh, what they can do, you know, project-wise. And he kind of got upset in the sense that they, we, we have a tendency to do conservation stuff for two or three years, and then there's a new administration or there's a new something that happens and we sidestep and do something else. So he wrote this letter, I, I, told, him, I told him at, at lunch in Laramie, I said, you're kind of like Jerry Maguire. You wrote this memo, except instead of getting fired, you got, you got told, okay, that's your project. He was like, whoa, this is way out of my scope. <laughs> so he had to put together, and the secretary wanted a secretary order, which these are pretty complicated and very unique. Uh, he wanted a secretary order in, I think it was a matter of weeks. And so Casey worked day and night, built a secretary order on how to do wildlife projects out west best. And as you know, I mean, the BLM is the largest landowner in the United States. I mean, it's significant. I can't remember how many hundreds of millions of acres they own, but it's a lot. Right. So when it comes to wildlife, they have a huge stake in this as the landowner is, you know, you're a rancher, you understand the rancher has a huge stake in not only ranching, but, but also what the wildlife on your ranch, you know, how, the, how they're treated and, and the forages and the, and the water and all that stuff. So Casey writes this thing and the secretary of state uh, agrees to it and they put it into action 
three years ago. And what it was is states come to us, come to them with three to five projects. And these are projects that span over 10 years. Because this is secretary order, it can't just be manipulated. It has to be either carried out or a new secretary has to real, build a new secretary order to reverse it, which is more complicated than most people want to do. And they, they threw out, and I can't remember, it's, it's tens, if not, it's tens of millions of dollars, 50 or 60 million bucks at this project. And what, it, what their, their, their part isn't radio callers, that's GIS. Their part isn't the study, that's the University of Wyoming, that's the game and fish. Their part is, okay, once you guys figure this out, once you figure out what the problems are that we can affect, we'll throw the money at fixing those problems. So the, it's really simple. It's highway crossings. It's uh, buying properties that are about to become developments and, that are on migration corridors. It's buying those, those properties. It's uh, helping easement. You know, you have a large landowner who's considering selling or uh, needs a tax break because of passing it down or whatever. It's money going towards helping build those easements so that property is forever, you know, wildlife friendly. Or it's wildlife friendly fences. Um, one of the main, main problems in Wyoming is when you have a four or five strand fence, a deer goes to jump it, gets his back legs tangled in the top of the, in the second wire, and he's done. Uh, it's just projects like that. Now, they don't actually do the projects. BLM doesn't most of the time. They don't actually do them. They lean on the Mule Deer Foundation or they lean on the Elk Foundation or they lean on Wyoming, in this, a lot in this case, is Wyoming uh, Muley Fanatics to do the projects, but they'll fund it. They'll do all the funding for it. So when you have a trifecta like that or actually four entities, the nonprofits, the federal government being the uh, Department of Interior, University of Wyoming with the studies, the game and fish with, with the research. When you have all that come together, you can actually make a huge impact. So they studied these deer for since 2013 and they found out that these deer migrate way longer than they thought. In fact, there's a, uh, they've been toting this, this doe that uh, she migrated 242 miles one way each year. So she was, she was going close to four, 500 miles one year, each year to migrate from where she would summer and you know, where she would, she would have a fawn to where she would winter in January, February and rut. And what, what that allowed them to do is find these corridors. There's a chunk of property just North of Pinedale. It was 340 acres and they found out that all these deer funnel like 5,000, not all these deer, but 5,000 out of 40,000 deer, 5,000 of them were migrating through this corridor. And this 340 acres was due to become a development. I mean, it was, it was for sale, purchased. They were gonna, they had, they had the plots built for cottages. It's around a little lake. Uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of people's dream but there's 5,000 head of deer that go through there every year. And so they put the money together and purchased this chunk of property, put an easement on it so it'll forever be open for wildlife. They gave it to the Wyoming Game and Fish to manage. And now you can see the current data. You can see all these deer funnel right past, right through that chunk of property. 
that is just one example of if you had cut that off, those deer would have died because they wouldn't have been able to get to the winter range. And a lot of people go, well, they'll just, you know, they'll change their migration pattern. They won't change the migration pattern. They found out that deer do not. They'll just hold up and end up dying. Uh, other species, they will, they will change their migration patterns, but deer are so habitual that they won't. They just won't do it. And the, the other thing, the other problem with deer is because they won't change their migration pattern, they won't spread out. So you won't have deer migrating or moving into new areas very easily. They have this thing that's called a rose petal. So they have a doe that her offspring She'll have, a, she'll have her offspring in a certain spot, and then her offspring, so she'll have a doe, and then that doe will have an offspring, and then that doe will have an offspring in the same area every single spring. And then they, they take those offsprings, and they go to the summer range, they go to the winter range, the exact same way. They're completely, unbelievably habitual, which means they're very delicate. Um, so what we decided to do is, hey, I asked these guys, knowing Casey since we were kids and, and, and knowing Gary Freilich since I was a kid and being introduced to uh, Matt uh, Monteith saying, okay, what, what can we do to help? Is it a money thing? Are you guys looking for funds? Are you looking for knowledge? Are you looking for, what can we do? And the number one thing is get involved. They said, listen, we don't have a money problem. We have a perception problem. How can we, they said, we're looking to you guys to get the word out. Let hunters know, let non-hunters know that this is what's happening. This is why the state bought 340 acres in Pinedale. And this is what's happening. And get involved. You can be part of the Mulder Foundation or Muley Fanatics, and you can be the guy that's doing the fence or the guy that shows up to the banquet, buys a gun raffle ticket, and that money goes into the fencing project. Um, and so it's kind of a public knowledge. So what we did is we built, we're in a unique situation. Um, my family's been filming on the winter range for these deer for over 40 years. And we're in a unique situation because we have video of deer on the winter range before the oil wells were there, before it was really an oil field. We have film of deer when it was an oil field, we have film of these these uh, giant these three deer we called my dad dubbed the Wyoming Living Legends. It's Popeye, Morning Goliath, and he made them literally living legends at one time. Of course, that was in the middle of the '90s. So they're not living anymore, um, but their offspring is. And so we took that video, that video plus my father, who's still alive, his knowledge of of hanging out on the winter range filming when, when I was a kid and, and even older than that, uh, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, and took him, and he loves to take photos now, so we took him out on the winter range, we took some photos of wintering bucks and just kind of picked his brain. You know, what's, what's this look like? What did it look like in the 60s? Whenever he says, oh, it was the heyday of mule deer. Picked his brain there, picked uh, Kevin Montese, Dr. Ke uh, Montese brain on what does this all mean picked Gary Freilich's uh, brain on what he's seen in the, over the last 27 years, um, picked Casey Stimler's brain on what is the federal government's point on this? What are they, what are they looking for? And we put it all in a documentary uh, that we're releasing 
um, over Thanksgiving weekend that is going to basically show where deer came from, where they're headed, and what we are doing as a population, as hunters and conservationists, to maintain a population, a good healthy population in this area. Now the beauty of this is it's not just Wyoming. They're using this as a test subject for other states. The Department of Interior is was tasked with all 11 Western states. So all 11 Western states submitted projects to them to be funded. Out of the 11 Western states, every single one of them is doing a mule deer project. Every one of them. In fact, some states like Wyoming, Colorado, California are doing multiple mule deer projects. So they're using Wyoming as a test subject. Idaho, Oregon, they all are doing something with mule deer and this is the beginning of it. So we're trying to get the word out there early. Hey, get involved, Joe Finicnick Hunter, Joe Finicnick Conservationist. Get involved with your conservation organization with knowledge. This is all knowledge. So when you're talking to your buddies and you're like, oh, I remember back in the heyday with mule deer, you can actually be informed and discuss this is really what's going on. It's not what we all think. In fact, Gary Frelich's recorded 2000, uh, from 2012 to 2016 was some of the best mule deer hunting in that area in history. They had actually hit their management goals. They were killing it. Then they had a couple really bad winters, plus some oil field stuff, plus, plus, plus. But it was, it was epic, and it can be epic again if we do it right. I'm sorry. I, I just completely diarrhea the mouth, James. <laughs> <laughs> I get excited about it too. And, you know, mule deer have, have nationally been in decline since 1959, right? And, and they've seen that in every Western state. And if we look at Oregon, for example, um, it's been really bad. Like we've lost about half of our deer in just the last couple of years. Um, and people tend to blame whatever they're ready to be mad about. So yeah. if, they're, if they're mad about predators, then they're like, oh, we got to get these lions and wolves and coyotes knocked down. And if they're mad about ranchers, they're like, you know, all these fences and all this, uh, all this ag is really messing with the deer. Or, you know, if they're mad about something else, you know, they're going to blame logging, hunting pressure, hunting pressure poaching, whatever. Um, but the reality is all of these factors do have an influence on a deer population. And one of the things that I've really appreciated that's come out of Wyoming is that what you guys have identified is that predation doesn't necessarily hurt a healthy mule deer herd. But mm -hmm. once they get compromised by a few other factors, then predation can have a really serious effect. Those guys, every single one of those, the biologists, Gary, uh, Kevin, and Casey all said, if it was one thing, we'd just fix it. If it was predation, we'd fix that. If it was land ownership, we'd fix that. It's not. It's a lot of little things. It's like it's like putting drops of water in a bucket, and pretty soon the five-gallon bucket's full. It's a lot of little things that affect this deer population. So what their point is is to fix what they can. Predation, they can control it to a point. Human population, they can control that to a point. Obviously, hey. I drive a one-ton truck. I don't want oil and gas to go away, but I do want it done responsibly. There's ways now to do it responsibly. And, and I think, honestly, talking with the, the uh, oil companies, they want to do it responsibly because they look at it as if we do it responsibly, we get to keep doing it. If we don't do it responsibly, it's going to get taken away. 
they want to do it responsibly, as is as does everybody. So it's just not one thing, and everybody's on board. It's very important, and, and Oregon's no different. I've seen some of the plans for you guys' studies. It's going to be really neat to see, because it's not going to be Wyoming's problems. They may be some of the same problems or all the same problems, but one may be worse than the other, and how they fix it will be different. It's going to be fun to watch. Oregon really likes to differentiate populations with highways and interstates. So yep. Oregon considers um, to itself to have two different mule deer populations. So everything north of I-84, which is northeast Oregon, they call a non-migratory population. And it, we tend to have a lot more verticality there. We've got mountains and canyons, and these deer migrate vertically throughout the year. But while it may be a few thousand feet, it's not a long distance. And then as you get into the more arid and desert type country, now they're traveling great distances and that's the stuff that's south of the interstate. And then with the, with the Rocky Mountain Elk and the Roosevelt Elk, that's distinguished by the right. interstate I-5 as well. So it's, it's kind of an interesting take where we're managing these wildlife populations based off of a strip of asphalt that goes across the ground. But you've got to do something. It has to start somewhere. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things Wyoming found out, we have a very similar problem. We have uh, the I-80 corridor that goes down across the southern part of our state. And a lot of mule deer migrated from the southern part of the state up into the Red Desert. Uh, that I-80 corridor cut that off. And when they started putting overpasses, wildlife overpasses, it completely changed the migration. It's got way better. Yeah. So... They have the tools to fix that. And then it's not, then it's not, you know, the migration isn't dictated by what we do. It's dictated by them, the wildlife. Is it the does that are showing the bucks and fawns where to go? Or does everybody kind of know where to go in these migrations? No. So here's, here's one of the craziest things I never thought of, but they have, they have it documented. So they, they collared a, a doe in like 2013. In 2016, they started collaring, or 2014, uh, 15, they started collaring um, fawns. Then in 2018, they started collaring bucks as well. There's the basin, and I kid you not, there's a basin uh, that some of my guys went into, Brandon and Scott went into a basin, and they found a collared buck. They videoed it. It's on this video. They found a collar buck. So we tell Gary, hey, here's a photo of your collared buck. He's like, oh, I know where that buck is. He goes, if you'd have went down to the bottom of that basin, his mom's there. So what happened is his mom would have that fawn in June on the, at some point, and that fawn, being a buck, then migrated to that same spot every year. This, this buck's five years old. He hasn't been with his mom in four years. But you can go into a basin, and they're all in all those deer are related. That buck, that four-year or that uh, five-year-old buck, is with an eight-year-old buck that was the fawn of that doe nine years ago. It's yeah. crazy. Now, here's the other crazy thing about deer that they just found out: bucks in this area, and it differentiates. But in this area, Gary has never checked a ten-year-old deer, a buck deer. Never. It's always been younger than that. And they, he said, I've checked. Three-year-old deer that are four points. Two-year-old deer that have two or that are two by threes. He said, but I've checked 
multiple times. I, you know, they, they've been collaring these deer since 2013. He goes, we have collared 15 year old does and not one or two, multiple of them. So this doe is having eight, seven, 10 fawns out of, let's say 10, five of them are bucks. They're all living in the same basin. It's like walking into somebody's house. Yeah. When you go into a basin to hunt. That's pretty cool. I, th- I think the elk do a lot the same. And of course, elk herds tend to, you know, be a lot bigger different times of the year. But a couple of years ago, a friend, and, a friend of mine and I were out shed hunting and I picked up a right and a right from two years ago and from this year that were almost on top of each other, just a couple of feet apart from the same bull and uh, threw them in my pack and we met up at the end of the day and I told him about it and he goes, well, I found a left and a left right on top of each other. I said, let me see them. That was two miles away where in not like flat, easy miles, like take you all day to get there kind of miles. And that bull had dropped his right and his right in one spot and his left and his left in the other spot. Um, two years in a row. Two years in a row, exactly the same spot. Jeez. So. If you want to talk about the consistency and and the habitual nature of these animals, like there's a great example. Um, oh, yeah. He was doing the exact same thing at the exact same time, multiple years in a row, over quite a large distance. It's well, incredible. We're not that different. I, I, I love coming home. And I'm sure everybody has their thing. It's just like, just like animals. They have their thing where they go in the winter, where they lose their antlers, where they breed, all that. It's no different. Yeah. Well, I do think that it's cool that, that there's a group of people that are trying to figure it out because there is also a big group of people who definitely care about deer, but they've just given up. They're like, it's over, you know, that yeah. the time has passed. And in, in Eastern Oregon, the time passed maybe before I ever got a chance, you know, there was great, great deer hunting in the 60s and 70s and, you know, started to diminish in the 80s. There are still a few big bucks in the 90s. Um, we saw a couple big deer this year, but the population is just gone. It can come back. We can fix this stuff. You know, we still have a viable population. And if you look at species like bison, you know, we got those down to just a couple animals. And then we're able to bring the species back from that. Um, Not to the extent that they were, but we have this opportunity with mule deer where we really can do it if we learn about what needs to be done that we can actually do. And and, and they've proven it. I mean, they had their, like I said, they had their best years between 2012 and 2016 before two really, really bad winters in a row. They had their best years. And part of it is because they understood how to manage them. And they start, you know, in 2014, they started putting these underpasses, which help. And and we can do this and it doesn't take a ton. You know, it's not a magic formula to it. It's simple, simple things. Buying a chunk of property, putting some overpasses in, uh, putting some good fences in that that are wildlife friendly. All this stuff are huge. They make a, you know, it's just, it's just knocking away those drops in that bucket. And pretty soon you go, well, we're managed predators. We've managed fences. We've managed highway crossings. We've managed corridors, you know, these places that they're all migrating to. And so all they're having to do is habitat and we can actually help them with a little habitat here and there where, you know, this, like in uh, uh, the red desert, they have a problem with their alder. A lot of their alders dying for some reason it's dying. 
great, let's figure out how to, how to make that alder, which is a huge staple for them in January and February and some of the worst months, let's figure out how to make it come back. Or is it a natural thing? The other thing that Gary said is, it might just be old and need to, need to die off and new stuff needs to grow. And if that's the case, let's go in there with the old dead stuff, go in there and mow swaths of it and plant new stuff so that it's like, you know, it's your ranch, it's like row crops. All of a sudden, you're a wheat farmer where you have stuff that's that's at rest and you have stuff that's new and you have stuff that's dying off and it just keeps, you know, laying through there. And that's the stuff we can do with, with not a huge problem. Not a huge, actually not even that much money. The, high, the, the highway crossings are the most expensive and with the Department of Interior wanting to help with that, that's easy, easy. That's awesome. Well, I think it's really cool. I can't wait to see the video. Um, Brandon said he got to take a take a peek at it a couple of days ago and was just blown away. Um, yeah. I'm excited to see it come out. If people do want to get involved in this stuff, I'm going to give them a couple options. So let's say that they can identify a place where deer are historically crossing in their area. And let's say, all right, they're going to go up to the landowner and offer to rebuild their fence so that it's now wildlife friendly. What does wildlife friendly fence look like for mule deer crossings? It's actually not that hard. Uh, it isn't pulling the wire out. What it is is it's replacing, replacing T posts with wooden posts. And on the top of the wooden post is a pole, a wooden pole that goes between the wooden posts. And that's all it is. And you don't have to do miles and miles and miles of it. If you recognize a place where they're migrating year after year after year. In fact, there's a, there's a spot that I just, I had to run uh, to an elk area, late season elk area just closed on Sunday and we had to go gather up our camp yesterday. And there's a spot on the highway where the antelope, and I'm talking 400 yard spot that the antelope migrate. And I'm not talking one or two, I'm talking thousands of antelope will pile up against this fence and then they jump it, go underneath it, two or three at a time, and then they run the gauntlet across the busy highway in front of Kanye's place, and that's not a lie. It's, it's literally in front of Kanye West's house. Run across the highway and then do it again. If you took that chunk of, of fence and put, and you probably have 100 posts, maybe 200 posts and 100 poles, if you took that, it would make, it would mitigate all of the issue that they have. So when they cross the fence, it's easy enough to get across the highway. Or because it's a highway, you get the highway department to put an underpass in there. It's just a tunnel. It's basically a glorified culvert, and they'll right. go underneath that. So you go to landowner and say, hey, is, do you mind if we buy 300 posts and 200 chunks of pole and just replace this in the same spot the, the wire fence, or in the same spot that the T posts were, your wire will maintain, your cows aren't going to get out, and put it in there. And a nonprofit organization does it for a couple thousand bucks. And that's a great project. That's something you can bring kids in and get them, them involved with. And it's like planting trees. You know, you're yep. going to see that in your lifetime. And it feels like something that, that you'll never really see the benefit from. But the reality is if you just do it now and get after it, you will start to see these results. And it's important. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. What else, um, what else can people do to get involved that, that actually makes a difference? You know, one of the things is, with the with the current political stance, I, I encourage these guys, hey, write a letter to your state senator, write a letter to your state representatives, 
and tell them that this is important. Inform them of what is going on. Send them some links. We got some links in this YouTube video. By the way, this is going to be out on YouTube uh, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. There's links in there on the information. Tell a senator. Tell your representative. Tell, you know, talk to your your local biologist, your local game warden. If you have a commissioner, like in Wyoming, we have game and fish commissioners that run our game and fish departments. Just send a letter or a note to them. You would be surprised. So we have a, I have a, a friend here in Wyoming that's the president of our Wyoming Game and Fish uh, Commission. He's been a friend a long time before he was that. And I mentioned, you know, gosh, how often do you guys get letters and compliments or, or complaints? He goes, you know what? Oddly enough, hardly ever. They love hearing from the Joe Finicnik, the, the people that are involved. Send them a letter. Show up to a meeting. Uh, one of the other things is get involved in a, in a nonprofit organization. If it's a national one like Mule Deer Foundation, a Rocky Mountain Foundation, Elk Foundation, or if it's a local one like the Muley Fanatics or somebody, you know, we have a Wyoming Sportsman's Alliance here in Wyoming, something like that. Just, and I'm not talking about get on the board and donate a thousand hours. I'm talking about just grab a board member and go, what can I do? I have 10 hours this week. What can I do? If it's going around to get donations or if it's showing up at a banquet and, and uh, you know, getting a raffle ticket for a rifle and buying a dinner and, you know, enjoying your time with like-minded people, just do it. I know we're all really, really busy and we're all trying to make a living out here and, and in the current state, it's not, not easy. But if you get involved 10, 15 hours a year, that's it. 10 or 15 hours, you get involved, and we got 10 or 1,500 people do that, that's a huge impact, huge impact. Absolutely, and it actually works. It actually does some good, and I can't, I can't stress that enough. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of organizations that are just talk. There's a lot of meetings where people just get together and nothing actually occurs from it, but if you go out there and actually move some material around – and put up put up some posts and polls like you are yep. making a difference and it's not that difficult it's not a big no. time suck it's not a big money suck and it sure enough is going to change our ability to keep such an iconic species around for future generations when you leave there going man i accomplished something this week i was outside which we all try and do anyway i was outside i was with like-minded people I got to teach that kid how to hammer a nail in or dig a, a, a post hole or cut a notch out of a, out of a pole. I get, that's just fun. And, and one thing I like about outdoorsmen is we're very like-minded. We're a very shy group of people because naturally um, if you want to be outside and out in the outer doors, you don't want to be around a lot of people. So that's one of the things we overcome, but you want to be with like-minded people. We're all like-minded. We're all talking hunting. We're all talking about mule deer. And you never know. Maybe you're Gary Fralick and Kevin Monteith at a mule deer banquet and you start talking, or at a moose banquet, and you start talking about mule deer and you've spawned something like this that is, is you know, it equates to tens of millions of dollars and thousands and thousands of deer lives changed because you're at a like-minded organizational banquet. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think it's pretty cool. Um, like I said, I can't wait to see this. So, uh, this is coming out on Monday, two days later, this video is going to come out. Where can people see it? YouTube Eastman's hunting journals, YouTube channel. Uh, it's, it's called imperiled. 
and it's the Mule Deer Project for by the Mule Deer Migration Initiative. Um, we've spent a lot of time. I, I, I personally have spent hundreds of hours on this thing. Um, flew, we, we actually flew. So one of the big deer was Popeye and my brother and I talked to a guy that had taken, taken a photo of that deer in the summer. He found the deer in the summer. Didn't really know what he had until he distributed it. Anyway, so we pinpoint that on the map. I'm a pilot. So my brother and I got in the plane and we flew his migration patterns because we knew where he was wintering and we flew from there to his summer pattern or summer migration and how far that is is unreal when you go from a desert floor all the way up to 10 15 or 10 i think it's 10 5 where he was summering up three crosses three major rivers two mountain ranges it's awesome unbelievable so it's youtube eastman's hunting journals youtube channel imperiled the mule deer migration initiative Awesome, Mike. Well, thank you very much. Please tell everyone on uh, on your end of things hello. And, uh, I will. Keep, keep doing what you're doing, man. I love it. I will. I appreciate it, James. You have a good day. Good luck hunting in uh, Nebraska. They're yeah. killing some giants. I've seen a couple good ones. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, you know, I apologize for the background noise. I'm in a, a Love's truck stop parking lot right now. I'm on my way to go hunt, but you guys got the point. Anyway, was that a shameless plug? Are you sponsored by Love? No, no. I had to look over and see what it was. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, James. Enjoy your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.